Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. The saints at Foothills send you greetings as well. So today we're going to be in Hosea chapter 6, and we're going to focus on this idea of of pressing on to know the Lord. Uh, And as we do that, my hope is that this text, in this text, you will see the beauty of knowing the Lord. But before we, we dive into the text, I do want to give you a little bit of background, right? So I don't assume that everybody here knows all that there is to know about the book of Hosea or the prophet Hosea. Hosea is in the Old Testament. He's a minor prophet. He's actually the first book within the minor prophets, and it's the longer of those. So just after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you've got got Hosea. The prophets, when they preach, they've got basically the same message for most of the prophetic books. Hosea is no different. When Hosea preaches, he's got three main ideas that he's trying to get across to the people. That's that Israel and Judah have have broken the covenant that God made with them when he brought them out of Egypt, known as the Mosaic Covenant, and he's calling them to repent. He's saying, repent, come back to me, be faithful to this covenant. The second point of the, the message that Hosea and the other prophets give is if you don't repent, God is going to judge you, and he's going to judge you through the exile in Assyria and Babylon, and he'll be pretty explicit about what those look like. And then he actually offers them hope, but there's hope even though after you You break the covenant, and after you refuse to repent, God is going to bring about hope through a Davidic king who will usher in a new covenant. Hosea has this message. We actually just read that hopeful part in Hosea chapter 2, right? Most of the rest of the book is those other two parts. You've broken, you know, covenant, and you need to repent. If there's no repentance, there's going to be judgment, and our text today is largely going to be that text of judgment. So Hosea's message In his context match, he's an 8th century prophet, which means that he is prophesying in the 700s BC. He has several contemporaries, other prophets who are prophesying at roughly the same time as him. Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Jonah, they're all 8th century prophets along with Hosea. And the kings during this time are, are kind of a mixed bag. So you've got at the beginning of his prophecy, he mentions a few different kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah from Judah. And these are, the first two, are are, are kind of so-so kings. They do what is right, but they don't lead the people in right worship, really. And then you've got Ahaz, who is one of the worst kings in all of Judah's history. He sacrifices children. He puts foreign altars in the temple. He's not good. Let's just leave it at that. And then following on his heels, at the end of Hosea's ministry, you'd have a king like Hezekiah, who's one of the better kings in Judah's history. He does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And there's only unequivocal statements really made about a couple of kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. These these kings loved God. They did what was right in his eyes. There's also in the northern kingdom of Israel, so there's, there's two kingdoms, Judah and then Israel, Jeroboam is mentioned. Jeroboam is named after a king who introduced the official worship of idolatry into the, to the life of, of Israel, the northern kingdom. So this guy's named after the guy who introduced idolatry, and he himself is an idolater, which is really kind of when we think about this historically and we think about it theologically, you can read a little bit more of that history in 2 Kings 14 through 20 and 2 Chronicles 26 through 28. But as we think about this historically, Assyria, this kingdom kind of across the fertile crescent from them, Assyria is looming on the periphery And they're threatening to take over the peoples of Israel and Judah. And God is telling them that he is going to judge them 
through the Assyrians. Theologically, the big issue that Hosea is confronting is idolatry. You saw in chapter 2 right there, I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, right? So in that text, he says, no longer, when that happens, you will no longer call me Baal-e, my husband. That's what the word Baal means. It means Lord, husband. It's a common word. You will call me Ish-e, my husband. They both mean husband. Because so far will he remove idolatry from their mouths that even the common use of the word Baal, which just means husband or, or Lord, like a, the mistress of a house is called a Baalah or a Baalah, right? So far will he remove idolatry that the common word for Baal isn't even going to be used anymore. And what is he going to do? He's going to wed him, his people to himself. So Baal is the, the storm or fertility god of the Canaanites that the people are worshiping. So Hosea is calling them out for this. So in our text today, in Hosea 6, you've got, you've got my long, big idea there, and I actually shortened this, so I'm going to give you a little bit more as I say this. I'm sure John's are much shorter. Mine are like Puritan book titles. So I apologize. God's people, Israel, right, are called to repent and to know the Lord. This is done through faithfulness to the covenant that God has made with them. But the people have a nature of covenant unfaithfulness. Throughout the whole Testament, you see this. For Israel, covenant faithfulness was not possible apart from the miraculous work of God, obviously. But God has provided that miraculous work, that way for his people through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not me, right? But it's God, what we just sang about. So let's read our text today. And we're going to read Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through the first half of verse 11. Verse 11 actually splits, and the second half of verse 11 goes with what follows it in the next chapter. So I'll only read the first half of verse 11. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as, as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away, goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There, they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. Let's pray. Father, as we read these sobering and strong words, Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts. We pray that we would not harden our hearts or bristle up as is so easy to do when such strong words are said. 
But Father, we pray that we would be people who not only hear your word, as was just prayed, but that we do your word. Father, that we would be convicted of sin. Father, that we would see your beauty. Father, that we would understand the grace that we have in the new covenant sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So in our first three verses, we're going to see a call to repentance and to know the Lord, a call to know the Lord. So I'm going to read 6, 1 through 3 again. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So here in this text, we're actually going to see two appeals, one at the beginning of verse 1 and one in verse 3, and they both have this, this, this phrase, let us, right? The first appeal is going to be, let us return to the Lord. This is a call to repentance, to return to the Lord. And this is actually what's going on from the preceding text, is God has just said that he's going to tear them like a lion, and he has said that he is going to wait for his people to respond. And here, I believe you've got the, the prophet Hosea calling the people to respond. And the people are supposed to echo this sentiment. Let us return to the Lord who has torn us, right? That he may heal us, right? Israel, up to this point, all the way back to chapter four, has been accused of covenant breaking. They have broken the covenant and God has set up a covenant lawsuit against them. That's fancy language all the way to say that God is like taking them to court saying, you've been unfaithful. And he's showing them exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C, all of this evidence that they have been unfaithful to him. And so what he's doing is he's waiting to see if they will repent. And if they return, God will heal them. And I, I love verse two. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. If you scour the commentaries here, they'll say, yeah, Christians want to make this about the, 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 the crucifixion and then the resurrection, but no New Testament talks, no New Testament text talks about it. This is so clearly about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't think we need one of the apostles to, to quote it for us to be able to say that. This is what Jesus accomplishes at the cross and then at his resurrection from the dead. Three days later, he revives us that we may live before him. What, a, what an awesome, awesome thought. I do wonder why the New Testament authors didn't quote it. I'm just like, this is just such a clear text. So, But it is an absolute beautiful language that we see here. And then that's going to move into this second appeal where it says, let us know. And then there's kind of this dramatic pause. Let us press on to know the Lord. And then it's going to talk about how the Lord's ways are sure, right? It's like as sure as the dawn, right? As sure as like, as sure as the sun's movement, right? It's as sure as the spring rain, which is something that's pretty sure in most places besides Arizona, right? We have kind of a weird late summer, kind of fall rain, and even that's not sure, right? So, so his ways are known. God is, you're in a systematic theology series right now, you're going to learn this, maybe you've already learned this, God is immutable. He is unchanging. And this is a good thing. 
In Malachi chapter three, it says that, because I, O Israel, do not change, you basically still exist. And what, what he's saying is, if I were fickle, if I changed on a dime, if I were like you, I would have taken care of you long ago. But his, his nature doesn't change. He is patient, he is gracious, he is compassionate, and guess what? He keeps covenant. So that second appeal is to let us know the Lord. Let us know the Lord. So what does this idea of knowing God mean? Well, Hosea is going to actually use this idea throughout his prophecy. We read one of those texts in Hosea 2.20, where he said, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This is a relational knowledge. It's not just some you know, ethereal kind of head knowledge that has no practical kind of uh, implications to it. It is a relational, intimate knowing. In Hosea 4.1, this is what it says about knowing God. It says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There's no covenant faithfulness and no knowledge of God in the land. You're living as if I don't exist, is what God is saying. Just a few verses after that, in Hosea 4, 6, he says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because they have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And there he's judging the priests in that context. But they're dying, they're perishing, because they don't know the Lord. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also This one? Okay. Is this one not? Oh. So, I apologize. So, this idea of knowledge, we actually get the solution to it at the beginning, in that text that was read during the, 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 the reading, which is God is going to, to solve this issue by marrying his people to himself, and they will know him. But then we get the accusation after that, and the accusation is stinging and scathing, and it is that my people reject me at every turn. They refuse to know me. They perish for lack of knowledge. So as we think about these ideas, these two calls that we see, we first see this call to repent. Right? And this text is directed at Israel and Judah. So repentance looks a little bit different to us. But I'm, I'm going to ask you this. What does repentance look like in your life? How often do you confess your sins to God and to others? Repentance is not a simple one-time act for the believer. It is something that we are continually doing. 1 John 1 gives us the scenario, right? If anyone says that they're without sin, they're a liar, and the truth has no place in them. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he doubles down and says, but if we say that we're without sin, we make God a liar. And then there's this really awesome, hopeful text at the beginning of two, which nobody goes on to. It says, but if you do sin, and of course, if is kind of a funny word there, because he's just said, if anyone says that he's without sin, they're a liar. If you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, right? Who is the propitiation, 
not only for our sins, but the sins of the world. So he's the only propitiation is what John's saying there. What an awesome thought. What does this repentance look like in your life? What does this confession look like in your life? And here's here's a tip when we're thinking about how to live this out. Don't just be thinking about, when you're thinking about your sin and you're confessing your sin to the Father, don't just say, Father, help me to not think about this sin and then help me not to sin. And all you do is think about that sin that you so easily entangles you. Instead, think about pursuing the Lord in righteousness. Think about those things which are beautiful and wonderful, those things that you should be pursuing. Don't just think of it as a one-sided battle where you're just trying to, to hold back sin. Pursue righteousness. There's fancy words for this in Christian thinking, but I'll just leave it at that. Pursue righteousness. And then that second appeal, which is basically that pursuing righteousness, let us press on to know the Lord. Knowing the Lord, as I said already, is a relational term. It is to be in relationship with him. In Proverbs 2, it says to the knowledge of God is basically the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God are the same kind of idea. Knowing the Lord is to be dedicated to him. When someone knows the Lord, their life is transformed from death to life from sin to righteousness. And knowing the Lord and pressing on to know the Lord is going to reflect itself in personal holiness and in corporate holiness for a body. Have you ever wondered what the will of God is? I assume you have. I have, right? Especially when you're a little bit younger, we often hear this, you know, what is the will of God for me? What is God's will for my life? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Your sanctification. That just means this is the will of God for you that you would be holy. And then he tells them what they're supposed to abstain from in this middle section. And then he says, he kind of wraps it up and he says, God has not called you to impurity or in impurity, but in holiness. If you are pursuing to know the Lord, if your desire is to know the Lord, He changes you to where people will see you and they will say, there's something different now. Let us press on to know the Lord. He changes our affections, which is what we're going to see in the very next section. So in in Hosea 6, 4 through 6, we're going to see that God's desire for his people is covenant faithfulness. He says in verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? So Ephraim is just a way to talk about the northern kingdom of Israel. It's the largest populous tribe. And so if you see the, the phrase Ephraim, sometimes it's just talking about all of the north. And that's what's happening here. Their capitals in Ephraim. That's kind of their seat of power. So what shall I say to you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? What shall I do with you, people? Is what he's asking. Your love is like a morning cloud like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God actually is responding to them by asking them what's he supposed to do. And he describes their affections. He describes their love, and it's not in good terms, right? 
Ladies, if you described your husband's affections or, or girls, your, your boyfriend's affections as like the morning cloud or like the dew that goes away early, they're fleeting. They're very temporary. They're like a vapor or a mist here one second and gone the next. It's not a good statement, right? So it's poetry. It gives us that picture. And he goes back to similar language from, from chapter one, right, where he talked about how, or from verse one, where he talked about how he tore them. Here he uses the words hewn and slayed them. And he's, he's basically, he's warned them by the, by the words that he's given to them through the prophets, right? He's, he's judged them through his word. And he's going to tell them the solution. They're going to, he's going to tell them their desire, that his desire is that they would have steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, same idea, that you would know me, press on to know me from the previous section here, that they would have the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God's desire for them is covenant loyalty. That's what that steadfast love idea means. He wants them to be faithful to their end of the relationship. And he desires knowledge of him more than burnt offerings. And here I think he's talking about obedience. So let's think about this for just a second. The first part of this text alludes to the fickle nature of Israel and Judah's love and affection toward God. What do your affections towards God look like? Are they fickle? Are they fleeting? I think one of the ways that you can judge this the best is what do your prayers look like? As you approach God personally, what does that say about your relationship? If you had a relationship with a spouse or a sibling or a friend that you cared deeply about and all you had was really awkward and weird conversation, wouldn't that say something about your affection towards that person? Press on to know the Lord. What do you meditate on? What does your mind go back to? Is it the football game that's about to be on in a few minutes? Hopefully the Chiefs will do better this week, John. It's, it's rough for us. The Cowboys have, I think, surpassed all expectation up to this point. What do you meditate on? What is your deepest desire? Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, is what Jesus says. Let us have affection for the Lord and let that show abundantly, not, not for our praise, but for the praise of his glorious grace. So not only does this text talk about the affection of his people and what it's like, that it's fickle and fleeting, but it gives a statement of what God's desire is, and that is, he says, that his desire is steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And he's basically saying the same thing twice here. That's what's happening in poetry when you see two lines, and we've seen this actually multiple times up to this point, that say the same thing. It's called parallelism, and it's just trying to really reiterate an idea. So he desires steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is really confusing to people at times. People say, well, I thought that God required the offerings. I've read Leviticus 1 through 7. Doesn't he require these things? He does. But what he's saying is that he would rather have them obey and be faithful so that they don't have to do that. So if you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is the point that 
that Samuel is making to Saul when he's rebuking him, right? He desires obedience, not sacrifice. God does not delight in animals being, you know, being killed for atonement of sin. What he desires is that his people would be faithful to him. So the idea of obedience comes in. An idea that the people have already very clearly struggled with all throughout history. If you were in the, the, the biblical theology of the people of God, that's basically the biblical theology of the people of God, is that they wander, that they sin, that they do not pursue the Lord like they ought. This starts with Adam and Eve. They disobey God's word. God always gives a gracious word to his people, and they disobey. It happens over and over again. And we hear the word obey, and we're like, well, this guy might be a legalist, a legalist maybe. No, God always wants his people to obey him. So think about this. If you're a parent and you're reading those household codes in like Ephesians or Colossians, and it says, children, obey your parents, you're like, that's a good word. Why, why is it a good word for children to obey parents? Because the parent hears that and they know that you want what's best for your child. The child hears that, and what do they do? They bristle up and they're like, whoa, this is just like, they just want conformity right? They want to ruin my life, right? They want to take all the fun away, right? Well, for some reason, as adults, right, we're like children when we hear these obedience texts, when God is talking about it, aren't we? But we should actually view it like we do as parents and thinking God probably just wants, I know it's not just a probably, God wants what's best for us, doesn't he? What, what, what silliness to think that he doesn't. God's design and pattern for our lives is so much better than ours. And not only does he want obedience, he actually offers the way of obedience. So in the Old Testament, Israel isn't able to keep the covenant. Israel isn't able to stay faithful. But in the new covenant, God makes a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? And as the Old Testament talks about this, you see this, I think, even in texts like Hosea 2. The solution is that God is going to marry his people to himself and faithfulness and steadfast love. The same ideas here, the same words. And he's going to do that by ushering in this covenant that he, that he gives to his people by removing their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, and placing his spirit within them. And in Ezekiel 36, when it uses that language, it doesn't stop there. It says, and I will cause them to walk in my ways. Jeremiah 31 talks about something similar, that the law is going to be written on our hearts. It's going to be inside of us. And if you want to know what this obedience looks like, there are so many really good texts to go to. Certainly the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, you just got done with that, so you know everything that there is to know, right, about the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and the Gospel of Matthew. But read a text like Romans 12, and don't just stop after you hear about the living sacrifices. Read the rest of it and spend time thinking about, well, what does he mean when he says, be sober-minded? Right? What does he mean when he's talking about this brotherly affection and love that we're supposed to have? What does he mean when he's talking about our relationship to outsiders? What does the Christian life look like? Read Ephesians 4, where he's going to press them to unity at the beginning of the text. And then he's going to talk about how there's this multitude of gifts and how they're all to be used for the building up of the body in love where it's being jointed together. I'm sure you're going to talk about some of these texts today in your church membership uh, class later on. We've been offered the way to be faithful to him. 
press on to know the Lord. In our last section, verses 7 through the first part of 11, it ends on kind of a sad note. Actually, it ends on a very sad note. The covenant-breaking condition is really what God's people are. That's, that's really their heart. So verse 7, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie and wait for a man, so the priests bound together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. That's strong language. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. That is ominous. The last section left off by showing God's desire for covenant faithfulness. Well, here we see very clearly that the people's condition is not covenant faithfulness. That it's quite the opposite. And it starts off with a little bit of a tricky issue here where it says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. There's, there's a lot of different views on this text. I'm not going to actually spend a whole lot of time exegeting them. But two main views. One, that Adam is a place. Adam is a place named in the book of Joshua where they enter into the land. That's what almost every grammarian who looks at this text says that the Hebrew says. And then most theologians want to tie this to an Adamic covenant, right, that God made with Adam in the garden. That fits my theology very well. The syntax goes towards the first one. The theology goes towards the second one. Some people try to combine those two a little perilously. Which one it is, I think it's probably the geographical location because you've got Adam, Gilead, Shechem mentioned all in a string there. And then it says in the second half of verse 7, there they dealt faithlessly with me. But my theology wants to say the other one, is what I'm saying. But just because I want something to be true doesn't mean that it is. Regardless, the point of this text, it doesn't matter which of those options you take, the point of this text is super clear. You've transgressed the covenant. That's the point that he's making, right? You've transgressed the covenant. You've dealt faithlessly. And then he's just going to go on and he's going to describe what that looks like. And it is bleak. It is dire. They are covenant breakers. And actually, if you just keep reading, the rest of chapter 7 and pretty much the rest of the book is going to use language like this. It's pretty ominous. They're covenant transgressors. They deal faithlessly. They're evildoers. They lie in wait. They form gangs. They're described by the word villainy. They're murderers. If you were describing your family this way, it would be a pretty broken family. And God is saying that his people, his children from chapter 1, are this way. So a harvest of judgment is appointed. That's what that harvest is. So a harvest is appointed. The condition is covenant breaking. The problem as we think about applying this, is that Israel is guilty of breaking the covenant over and over again. It's their nature inherited from Adam and their own actual transgressions. Romans 5 talks about this. But if you are in Christ today, their condition, the condition of the people, is different than our condition. We hear a warning here to Israel. We should well up in praise and thankfulness to God for how we think. Because Israel's condition was that they were covenant breakers. They were not able to keep the covenant. However, we are in new covenant relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. They were not able not to sin, to use Augustine's categories. We are no longer slaves of sin. If you read Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7, 
With the change in nature, there's a change in our desires. We are free from sin and its effect. We are free from the bondage of sin and able to live live lives of righteousness to the glory of God. Now, we will still have sin, as I just said from 1 John, but the power of sin has been broken through Jesus Christ's work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and God's gracious giving of his spirit to us as a seal for our redemption, which you'll talk about next week in the Holy Spirit class. Go there. The solution to covenant, the covenant-breaking nature of Israel is that God saves covenant-breaking people through a covenant-keeping son. He, he saves his covenant-breaking people through his covenant-keeping son. And this leads us to the gospel call, doesn't it? All of Hosea 6 is a call to repentance. It begins that way, and it really just echoes and refrains throughout. The only way to approach God is through his son, Jesus Christ, who took on the curses of that covenant that we are all guilty of breaking so that we can be reconciled to God. Read Romans 3, which has a beautiful discussion of this. I assume most of you in here are believers. There's an implication of the gospel call beyond just repenting and believing. It moves well beyond that. We are called as a people to preach this message to a people that are at enmity with God who are enemies of God, who are faithless, who are slanderers, who are murderers, who have broken God's holy word over and over again. We are called to be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, ministers of reconciliation through this gospel message. One of the most convicting verses I was talking with John about this right before the service is when Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And then he says, like, fulfill your ministry. Like, this is the point. The world around us is lost and dying. They're perishing. And we have the solution. Not that it comes from us. It comes from God. He has given it to us. And we read about this over and over again throughout the New Testament. We read about it in Matthew 28, where he says, therefore go and make disciples, right? That's a very famous passage. We know that one. But maybe one that that might ring a little closer to home is Romans 10. Romans 10, he talks about, you know, how how can they hear unless someone has been sent, right? And how can they be sent unless someone goes, right? So, we need to be people who understand this gospel call that it is not just for us, but it is for everyone. Hosea 13.4 also has a text about knowing the Lord. And he says, but I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God, right? And I brought you from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. There is no other way to God but through his Son, Jesus Christ. And we have that message. We need to be people who go out and are excited to help others press on to know the Lord. 
So let me just ask you this week. You know that coworker that you've been wanting to share the gospel with, that you've just felt convicted about for months, maybe weeks, maybe years? Be bold enough just to take a first step and let them know that you go to church. It's easy for people like me and John who kind of teach the Bible for a living because one of the first questions that people ask you is, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a pastor, or I teach the Bible, and they either they run or they'll ask you a bunch of questions, right? But maybe if you're, you know, you've known somebody for a while and they're like, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself. Maybe you just say, you know, the first thing out of your mouth is, you know, I, I, I'm a believer in Jesus. I have a family, right? I, I have a husband. I have three kids. What, whatever it is, right? Maybe you just, you, you casually slip that in. And then you build. You build. Maybe it's, you see somebody, you're just taking a walk in your neighborhood and you see somebody and you can tell that there's something wrong. You're walking your dog and it's amazing how if you walk your dog, how many people will talk to you. If you have a dog, you know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe, maybe you can see that there's something wrong. Maybe you just say, hey, um, is something wrong? Can I pray for you? I, I've never had anybody get mad at me when I've said that. They usually actually just start weeping and they're like, yes, please. And then a door is opened to guess what? Say, there's hope. And that hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get a dog. Helps your evangelism a lot. <laughs> really, it does. Remember what you're called to. Press on to know the Lord. And press on to make the Lord known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for how he reveals who you are. We thank you for the spirit that you have given us. Father, we pray that as we consider the lives that we are called to lead, that we would desire covenant faithfulness. But Father, we thank you that even though we break the covenant, even though we are unfaithful, that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, who is perfectly faithful, and that we are covered with his righteousness as we approach the throne. So Father, today as we contemplate and consider these awesome things, we pray that it would be our heart's desire, what your heart's desire is, that we would press on to know you, and that, Father, we would press on to boldly make your Son known to the ends of the earth. It's in his name we pray. Amen.